Welcome to Season 2 of the Kraken Busters, where we're exploring the Great Sea Monster Crisis in 1987. This is Episode 209, Two Guys Walk Into a Bar. I'm Keith Pilly. So, okay, last week, Juliana Burke and the rest of Robert Kennedy's national security team met to discuss their options on what to actually do about the sea monster resurgence in the time that they were theoretically buying with the whole fake Soviet nuclear accident cover-up. These options included the old chestnut of letting the Navy try to fight it out, a return to the Harry Truman approach of dropping nuclear weapons on them, or the approach favored by the president's older brother John, filling the sea around Iceland with powdered nerve gas. The president was dithering, but leaning towards the Navy, when idle cable news chit-chat about sea monsters redirected everyone's minds back towards the cover-up. Also, as required by statute, Juliana Burke briefed a pair of senators about all this. This week... You don't think the Russians are going to take this all lying down, do you? At 7 p.m. Eastern Time on May 10th, 1987, President Robert Kennedy addressed the nation from the Oval Office in a speech carried live on all three broadcast networks. Kennedy's speech was brief and to the point, reiterating many of the same points that Burke had made in her own press conference a few days previously. The North Atlantic was closed to navigation, he said, because of a catastrophic radioactive contamination as a result of a disaster on a nuclear-powered Soviet vessel. He was now at liberty to identify the nationality of the ship because the journalist Charles Thompson of the Times of London, on board the HMS Exeter, had previously reported that the Exeter had discovered both radioactive contamination in air and seawater and flotsam that unambiguously had come from a Soviet nuclear vessel. In light of the radiation hazard, Kennedy said, the U.S. Navy would be continuing to assist the British, Icelandic, and other ADF navies in quarantining an exclusion zone around Iceland. Towards the end of his address, Kennedy changed course slightly and observed that scurrilous rumors about other things afoot in the North Atlantic were circulating and that these rumors should be ignored as they were almost certainly Soviet attempts to draw attention away from their own disaster. Instead, he challenged the Soviets to own up to what had happened and come clean with the world. Kennedy closed by assuring the public that American ingenuity was being brought to bear on the crisis and that they could count on the radioactivity being contained and cleaned up soon and the freedom of the seas being restored. The Soviet embassy in Washington released a statement almost immediately condemning Kennedy's speech as a collection of lies and demanded that he retract his obvious untruths and stop slandering the Workers' Republic. Of course, an entirely predictable statement by their embassy was hardly the totality of the Soviet response to Kennedy's speech. And, okay, I need to step back a little bit and uh, talk about my sourcing for this next bit. This, to be honest, this kind of thing is part of why I was a little hesitant at first to even cover this crisis, because it's still so recent that it just barely counts as history, as opposed to, you know, recent current events, kind of. 
But uh, also there's a large covert side to everything that happened with a lot of the nuts and bolts still either classified or at least not on record in any publicly accessible way. But if I am going to tell this story, I'm going to do it the right way. And I'm not without resources here. You see, towards the end of high school, I nearly worked for the CIA. I traveled out to Langley twice to talk to people, go through a bunch of evaluations, do a bunch of interviews. This is 100% true. I even went so far as to make an autobiographical comic about it, actually. Uh, you can find that pretty easily if you Google KP space CIA. Just you know, put a space in between. KP space CIA. You'll, you'll find the, the comic I made about nearly working for the CIA. Now, to be clear... I did not wind up working for the CIA, but I did wind up with a few contacts in Langley, which wound up being handy in my work as a historian and a journalist. Through my contacts, I was able to be introduced to some people who were directly involved with what I'm about to cover next. After we talked about some ground rules to make sure that nothing was revealed that would compromise assets or tradecraft that's still in use, and not reveal any national secrets, these sources agreed to go on the record with me, with, of course, a lot of identifying details changed. So, with all that said, here is the statement that was given to me by a source that, for the purposes of this show, I will call Augustus. I'll be reading his transcript to keep from revealing his voice. So, without further ado, these are the words of Augustus of the CIA. Quote, I'm a Directorate of Operations guy, which means that my standard duty station was off in an embassy in another country, pretending to be the agricultural attaché or whatever. But in between those postings, I'd occasionally have short stints back in Washington, usually time spent boning up on whatever the next target country was going to be. And this is what was happening in May of 87. I was in Washington, getting up to speed on the political situation in... Uh, a country, and, uh, and there was a weird double consciousness to working in operations, because we all worked very, very hard to maintain our official diplomatic cover, both at home and abroad. Even my parents thought I worked for the State Department. But we were under absolutely no illusions about actually fooling the KGB, especially after he'd been out in the field a couple of times. It was just beyond question that the KGB knew that I was CIA. And this is important because it's the only explanation for what happened next. I was in Washington, the KGB knew who I was, they knew that I knew that they knew, and so on, so I wouldn't shit my pants when they fingered me, and they probably had enough of a file on me to have a good idea how I'd react, and that I'd go through expected channels. So, maybe ten minutes before Kennedy was about to start his address, and by the way, I'd only been kind of paying attention to the whole thing, I was really caught up in the potential revolutionary scene in uh, Country X, and all this North Atlantic business just seemed like a sideshow to me. Anyway, maybe 10 to 7, I'm sitting in my apartment, reading briefing papers, and the phone rings. I pick it up, and a voice with a slight but unplaceable accent calls me by name and asks if I would care to watch the president's address at a bar around the corner. Now, I knew instantly what this was. This is absolutely a thing that we train for. Although you never really figure it's going to happen in your own apartment back in D.C. I say, sure, let's meet, and we go through the usual, well, I'll be the one in the red hat with the green scarf business. So, part of my brain is just deep into, oh, fuck, territory. 
Because whoever this person is, they just created a world of hassle for me. I'm going to have to fill out so many fucking papers because of this. And that's on top of whatever trouble the actual meat drops onto me. I mean, just god damn it. But you don't get anywhere in this business if you can't just shunt that part of your brain off onto its own side and get on with what you need to do. And anyway, I guess it was kind of exciting, if also kind of troubling. Troubling just because it's a bummer to know for sure, beyond any doubt, that the opposition knows who you are. It's not that I was worried about getting kidnapped or hurt. That kind of thing just didn't happen in the capitals, especially to guys working for the main agencies. But this confirmation was going to have huge implications for any future postings I might get. Anyway, I threw on a jacket and ran around the corner to the bar. The person was waiting for me in a back booth. Nobody I recognized, which was pretty much what I expected. I sat down and he pointed up at the TV behind the bar where Kennedy was just starting to give his address. Those are some fascinating claims the president is making, he said, or something pretty close. I shrugged. Then he slid a magazine across the table towards me. There are some interesting photos in this issue. Maybe these pictures make the president's claims a bit more fascinating. I opened the magazine and looked, and leafed in between some of the middle pages were some photo prints, six of them, eight by ten, black and white. Not always the greatest photography, but good enough to see what was what. Which meant you could see a limo at the front of the Hay Adams Hotel with a woman getting out of it who was pretty clearly the pop singer Debbie Gibson. Then a pic of Robert Kennedy walking into the Hay Adams with his security detail. And then, well, three pictures that were much lower quality but were unquestionably pictures of the president in bed with the singer in a room at the Hay Adams. Then finally... Uh, for good measure, a picture of the president's brother John and Debbie Gibson at a different hotel, maybe the Willard. I died a little inside for a couple of reasons. But again, you don't get far in this business if you can't set reactions aside and just bluff your way through things. So I stayed neutral. I guess they're interesting pictures. I'm not sure what they're of, and to be frank, I don't really care. He gave me the shit-eating grin of an intelligence bastard playing a winning hand. It doesn't matter if you know or not. Your superiors will. Tell them that I suggest that your president rethink who he's casting blame on in the North Atlantic and what stories he's telling. There is a telephone number written on the back of one of the photos. They can call it if they would like to talk further. And then he drained his drink, got up, and left. I nursed my beer for a few minutes to give myself time to get my thoughts in order before going back to call in a report on this and start filling out all the goddamn paperwork. End quote. Okay, so my source here, Augustus, filed a report with the CIA immediately, of course, and it didn't take long for the word to travel through the national security apparatus in Washington. The agency quickly evaluated the photos as real and the threat genuine. DCI Hughes was briefed and traveled immediately to the White House, where he briefed the president and his brothers, who had all been entertaining the actress Leah Thompson and a couple of her friends. A couple of books, most notably Juliana Burke's, make it very clear that Robert Kennedy's national security team was pretty close to unanimous that the gig was up here. He needed to stop digging himself into a hole with the Russians, especially when an actual national security crisis was clearly brewing. Burke and Dana Pizarro in particular argued that it was time to come clean, even if it meant just claiming that there'd been some kind of massive intelligence failure or something. The agencies would be pissed, they argued, 
But the agencies didn't have thousands of nuclear weapons at their disposal, and the Soviets did. Once again, the President's brothers weighed in with their own perspective. John Kennedy was firmly against ending the cover-up. First, he argued, the Soviets only understood strength. Standing up to them, even treating them badly, that earned their respect. Folding to their threats would just earn their contempt and invite them to push the U.S. around. Moreover, John said, publicly throwing the American intelligence agencies under the bus to appease the Soviets was not a thing to be done lightly. Those agencies were staffed with very strong-willed people who were willing to go to insane lengths to further their interests and agendas in pursuit of what they thought was right and in the best interests of the country. Yes, they were part of the executive branch, JFK argued, but way too many people in Langley saw their duty as to the country as they saw it and not to the president, and God knows what they would do and what could happen if RFK crossed them. Instead, John and Edward Kennedy argued, the thing to do here was hold firm, insist that the Soviets were to blame for the Atlantic quarantine, and in the meantime, okay, sure, forget the nerve gas, just let the Navy off the leash to wipe out the sea monsters. Or, you know, maybe try the nerve gas. But either way, take care of the creatures ASAP while blaming the mess on the Soviets and show them that the U.S. charted its own course by God. If the Soves went public with their dirty pictures, well, we just call them bad fakes made by the KGB. As usual, Robert Kennedy found his older brother's argument persuasive, to a point. Over the protests of Burke and Pizarro, he announced that the cover story was to be left in place, and the Navy was to be given orders to execute Operation Treblehook, their search-and-destroy plan, as quickly as possible. It was time, he said, to show resolve in the face of the Soviets. And as the Kennedys were getting ready to put their resolute faces on and stare at the Soviets, I would like to pop over to the North Atlantic for a quick item that's only recently come to light, actually. Um, so once the tame journalist on board the HMS Exeter had gone public about the discovery of radioactivity in the water, most of the world nodded, basically said, well, yeah, that sounds like a good reason to stay away. And then, you know, if they cared at all, they waited for Robert Kennedy to address the world. But not everybody. A ship called the MV Hoffnung, registered to the environmental organization Greenpeace, had been lingering around the Grand Banks trying to interfere with cod fishing. When the word got out about the radioactive discovery, however, the environmental organization saw an immediate change in priorities and ordered the Hoffnung to proceed towards the exclusion zone at her best speed in order to help highlight the environmental catastrophe that was clearly at hand. Now... The Irish musician Paul Bono Hewson of the rock group U2 happened to be in New York at the time. He was fairly tightly connected with Greenpeace's leadership and heard about the Hoffnung's mission pretty quickly after the boat changed course. Hewson and his PR team saw an opportunity here, either to contribute his fame to help shine a light on environmental degradation or to help burnish his brand as someone who cared about the environment, depending on which way you want to look at it. Either way, some quick calls were made, and within a couple of hours, Hewson was on a helicopter, en route to the Hoffnung with a documentary camera crew. Now, this much has all been public knowledge for years. All that's been known publicly about what happened next was that the Hoffnung was spotted by the Canadian Navy trying to run their patrol line around the exclusion zone and was never seen again. 
And then in the chaos that unfolded a few days later, for a long time, everyone just sort of left it at that. But then, in early 2020, a retired Canadian naval officer, Captain Douglas McKenzie, came forward and talked to a documentary crew about the disappearance of the Hoffnung. You might have heard about it, although the story got kind of lost in the early days of COVID. Mackenzie was a helicopter pilot on board the destroyer escort HMCS Yukon, patrolling the western line of the exclusion zone when the Hoffnung showed up and managed to slip through the line in a maneuver that the admiring Mackenzie describes as a beauty. Uh, Mackenzie claims that the Commodore commanding the Canadian patrol line ordered the Yukon to follow the Hoffnung into the exclusion zone and escort her out, and that the Yukon pursued the Greenpeace vessel for about six hours before a sea serpent the size of a freight train erupted from the surface of the ocean, wrapped itself around the hull of the Hoffnung, and popped the civilian ship like a zit. Mackenzie had been in the air already, he says, and flew his helicopter in close to see if his air crew could maybe at least fish some survivors out of the water. But as they were settling down above a group of survivors, one of which Mackenzie could clearly see was Bono Hewson, a massive shape emerged from the water underneath the survivors, an enormous jellyfish. A horrified Mackenzie watched Hewson and 12 other survivors of the Hoffnung go into convulsions and then begin to dissolve, a pattern that we of course know as the distinctive feeding cycle of Prince Jellyfish. Mackenzie reports that he flew back to the Yukon, which was already steaming west as fast as her power plant would take her, and reported what he'd seen to his captain. The captain, he says, told him that's what hippies who poked their noses in where they didn't belong deserved. The whole crew, officers and men, were soon ordered never to breathe a word of what they'd seen to anyone on pain of long imprisonment. Mackenzie only broke his silence because he was suffering late-stage liver failure and felt like he didn't have long left in the world anyway. And indeed, he died about a month after talking to the press. So... Now at least we know what happened to Bono and the Hoffnung. Like I said, the disappearance would soon be overshadowed by much larger events. And that is it for this week. Join me next week as we see how Kennedy's whole resolve in the face of the Soviets thing goes, and what kind of much larger events it might lead to. Thanks, and be safe. <laughs>